Thank you, Nate. Hello, Knollwood. It's good to be with you virtually this morning. My name is Marshall. I'm the associate pastor at MBC in Stratford, as Nate already told you. And I was actually able to meet some of you last week. Uh, my schedule opened up a little bit, and I was able to uh, attend the last in-person gathering before these most uh, recent restrictions came into effect. And that was a wonderful time. I was able to meet some of you, uh, to chat with you, to worship with you, and I just want to thank you for how welcome I felt and, and my wife and our daughter And I'm very grateful for this opportunity to share from God's word this morning. And I find myself admittedly in a bit of an awkward situation with this because for the majority of the time that I've been on staff at Memorial, we've been doing a lengthy series through the Gospel of Matthew. And so every time my turn in the preaching rotation comes up, I have my passage assigned to me. That, that part of the work is done, and I can start from there. But here, doing uh, kind of a, a one-off, for lack of a better term, I, I really struggled to, to find what was it that I was meant to preach. What passage should I teach from? And I thought about this a lot, and I prayed about this a lot. And in fact, I, if I'm being honest, I agonized over it maybe more than I should have. But I came to a decision about a passage that has been a great challenge an encouragement for me as, as I've been walking through and as we've been walking through this extended season of difficulty and challenge. And so I'd ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2. And as you're turning there, I want to give a little bit of context around this passage. This letter serves as a bit of a farewell address that the Apostle Paul is giving to Timothy. Paul has been imprisoned numerous times throughout his ministry, but now he's pretty sure that this is the end, that that his execution is imminent. And so he's writing to Timothy, a, a man that he's discipled from a young age, a guy who's been tasked with leading the church in Ephesus. He wants to encourage him and he wants to challenge him. You see, the church in Ephesus at this time is dealing with some difficult circumstances, I mean, of course, there's the prospect that they're about to lose Paul, the one who founded that church. There's also mounting persecution that's happening. And, and because of that persecution, people are leaving the church. And so Paul writes this letter as an encouragement and an exhortation. And while 2 Timothy is a letter from one church leader to another, that is true. There are scriptural truths here that I believe are applicable to all of us. In all seasons, especially in difficult ones, it's important that we have a healthy perspective of our role and our mission and how we are able to fulfill that as followers of Christ. And so let's read this passage together. 2 Timothy 2, starting in verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, 
risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. There's a lot here. And, it's, and it would be possible to break this lengthy passage down into a number of messages and turn it into an entire series. But my hope is that as we look at the, the breadth of it, we can tie some truths together and get a, a rich picture of who God is, who we are in Christ, what he has called us to do, and how we can be strengthened to do it. So let's begin where it's always best to begin at the beginning. Verse 1, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. He begins with this command to be strengthened. And the sense of the word, this command to be strengthened, is, is almost like keep on being strengthened. Now, it might be a bit of a strange phrase if we think about it. Paul is telling Timothy to do something, be strengthened. But the source of that strength is not found in himself. He is to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And this grace in Christ, this phrase is used multiple times throughout Scripture. And how has this grace come to us? How is it that we have this grace in Christ? Well, in the previous chapter, 2 Timothy 1, verses 9 and 10, we get a picture of of how that has come about. He writes how God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So first we know that this grace doesn't come to us through works, and we know this, right? I know what you guys preach here. Salvation by grace through faith. And we see that, in a sense, this this grace has come to us before the ages began, before time. It was God's will to give us this grace. But then, in time, it was manifested, it was made possible, it was established through Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection. And this grace of God that's given to us flows out from who Christ is. We know Christ is divine. We know that he is infinite. And therefore, the grace that is in him is an inexhaustible resource. Ephesians 2.7 talks about the immeasurable riches of grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And so for those of us who are recipients of that grace, let's, let's try to wrap our minds around this if we even can, right? The depths of his grace, they're unfathomable. They are infinite. It is an immeasurable grace. Now, when we think of God's grace, many of us focus on how that defines our position before God, right? In spite of our sin, he is gracious towards us. We've received this undeserved favor for we've been brought into this family of God. And that is true, and that is wonderful, and that is beautiful. But there's also another side of the coin, if you will, to what grace is, because grace 
also empowers. Grace isn't only about our position. It is also our source of power. Grace isn't earned by works, but grace empowers us to do good works. 2 Corinthians 9.8, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So we are strengthened by the grace that is in Christ for a purpose, to glorify him through doing good work. And what does that look like specifically? Well, in this context, when Paul is writing to Timothy, there's, there's an importance for him to raise up leaders. Verse 2, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Despite the fact that the situation may seem to be unraveling somewhat in Ephesus, Timothy needs to keep a long-term view in his leadership of the church. And there's a lot we could say here about the importance of raising up leaders in the church and, and the, the importance of generational discipleship. In my short time here last week, I, I saw that happening here. I saw that this, this disciples making disciples is something faithfully being done here at Knollwood. You even put it up on your wall. And I love that. Keep doing that. But that is not where we're going to land today, although that is an important truth to be reminded of. Because as we consider what it is we are being strengthened for, Paul is going to use three powerful metaphors to illustrate this grace-empowered obedience to Christ. And as we, as we take a closer look at them, we can better understand our need to be strengthened by the grace of God because what we are being called to is something that we're not able to do in and of ourselves. And so these three analogies or metaphors or pictures that we're given are the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. And so let's start with the soldier. Verses 3 and 4. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Now the Bible is full of these metaphorical descriptions of God's people. Right, the church is described in, in a variety of ways. Right? We're the, the bride of Christ. We are the children of God. We are the sheep of his fold, the body of Christ. And all of these pictures are beautiful and truthful and they, they shed light on the different aspects of the meaning of what it means to be united with our creator. But in order to have a, a fully orbed and well-rounded understanding of our role, we ought to consider this picture as well. Right? Paul repeatedly uses these military metaphors in Scripture. He refers to, to fellow workers in the gospel as his fellow soldiers. We have that lengthy passage about the armor of God. Do we ever view our relationship to God as a soldier under a commanding officer? Charles Spurgeon said that a church should be a camp of soldiers, not a hospital of invalids. And that made me chuckle because you might have something to say with how many churches nowadays describe themselves on their websites. We aren't perfect, but we aren't useless. We are soldiers, soldiers called to share in suffering. And there is an inevitability of suffering in warfare. I have a couple friends who were actually deployed in Afghanistan and they saw combat there and both of them suffered. They suffered physical wounds and they suffered mental wounds. War is brutal at times. 
And they would both tell you we shouldn't have this romanticized view of war, right? It's not about nice-looking outfits and marching in unison and shiny medals. It's painful. It's difficult. It's hard. And so we shouldn't have rose-colored glasses on when we consider our task to wage the good warfare, as Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy. The church is at war, but not against enemies of flesh and blood. And we don't use conventional weapons, but nevertheless, we are at war. And as a soldier of Christ, sometimes you will find yourself pinned down under heavy fire. And sometimes you're, you're cruising along only to get blown up by some unforeseen threat. And sometimes even the people that you're trying to help and trying to serve will turn on you. War is hard. And so a soldier requires a focus of purpose, a single-mindedness. They need to know the battlefield, know the enemy, know their equipment, know the strategy, know and trust their commander, and not to get distracted or as Paul says entangled now there's something I want to make clear here right we we can we can take this this command not to get entangled in civilian affairs to an unhealthy extreme there's there's not necessarily anything inherently wrong with just everyday life however if the things of this world entangle us if they prevent us from carrying out the call faithfully then they do become a problem the things of this world even the good things can compromise our focus. And if we don't properly understand this, we will constantly be tempted to avoid the hardships that are rightly belonging to soldiers of Christ. And when we face opposition and troubles and disappointments and difficulties, we will be inclined to complain. We will be tempted to run away rather than to stand with patient endurance. And as soldiers, we aim to please. We see that in verse 4. We don't please ourselves. We don't please other people. God himself, the commanding officer, the one who enlisted us. This is a high calling. This is why we need to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ. Next we read of the athlete in verse 5. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And Paul underlines the importance of integrity in athletics and then he connects that to the Christian life. In athletic competition, you can't win unless you compete according to the rules. Now, Paul would have been familiar with the Olympic Games. They would have been going on when uh, he was writing this. And the rules he was referencing probably were in regards to a couple of things. First, there was a required amount of training. Olympic athletes at the time had to take an oath that they had fulfilled the minimum of 10 months of training. And beyond that, there are specific rules for whatever sport they were competing in, whether they were running or wrestling or throwing javelins. Anyone who has competed in athletics understands the importance of both training and following the rules of the game. Several years ago, I got into Muay Thai kickboxing. Decided just I needed to lose some weight, and that was the way that I was going to do it. And I took to it, and I enjoyed it, and I started competing. And I would go to these competitions, right? And you'd be sitting there waiting for your turn, kind of shaking there in your, your seat, and watching the other fights that would go on before. And, and I'll tell you, you could tell who had put the time in and who hadn't. And in a sport like that, the, the stakes are pretty high. You don't want to go into that unprepared. How much higher are the stakes of what we're being called to? And there were rules. 
There were limits to what you could and couldn't do. And if you violated those rules, you could be disqualified and lose the fight. As believers, we are called to a discipline, to training in righteousness. And it's not always easy. But we've been given tools. We've been given exercises in the spiritual disciplines. Things like Bible reading and prayer, stewardship, evangelism, and fasting. That one's not very popular these days. We have been given a pattern to follow Christ himself. God has not left us in the dark. And he's given us a guide. He's given us his word and he's given us the Holy Spirit to understand and apply it. And this athletics analogy is not unique to this passage. 1 Corinthians 9, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do, not, they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body. I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul, who time and time again preaches salvation by grace alone, does not diminish the necessity for endurance. But I should know that there is one key difference between the analogy and the application for us. In the Olympics, only one athlete would be crowned. But the promise we have for scriptures, for all believers, we are promised this crown when we have faithfully completed the race. And it's a race we cannot run unless we are strengthened by the grace of Jesus Christ. The third analogy is the farmer, the hardworking farmer. It's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Now, I've said this multiple times, right? We rightly hold to salvation by grace through faith and not by works. But clearly here, hard work does not negate salvation by grace. Do we embody hard work in our Christian walk? Honestly, do we work hard like a farmer? Now, I didn't grow up on a farm, but I'm fairly confident that it's safe to say that a lazy farmer, if such a thing even exists, wouldn't get very far. But for the hardworking farmer, the logical result is that he will have a harvest and he will get to enjoy that and eat the fruit of his labor. The thing with farming is that there are factors that are beyond the control of the farmer. Right? Think about the weather or pests, market fluctuations and equipment breaking down. There are bad years, but they can often be overcome if the farmer had wisely worked in the past, faithfully continues to do so in the lean times, and wisely plans for the future. Is it, is it safe to say that in some respects the church has had a bit of a bad year? I'm not just talking about this church or my church. I'm talking about the church. It's been a rough one. Factors outside our control have impacted our work. How are we responding to that? How will we prepare for the possibility that this continues for a long time or that something like this happens again in the future? I would encourage you to to follow here what Paul says to Timothy. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Consider what we've discussed here. How does it apply to you directly? How does it apply to your family? How does it apply to your church? 
Now, we do not all have the same positions. We don't all have the same gifts. We don't all live in the same situations. And yet these truths apply to all of us. Meditate on God's word here. Ask for understanding and insight. Ask for wisdom. James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. That's a promise you can name and claim. Take that to the bank. But Paul does not end here, right? The focus shouldn't simply be do more, do better. Once again, he points us back to the source of strength we need to do this. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. We must fix our eyes on Christ. And in this this short phrase, we we get hints at both the incarnation and the resurrection. They're, They're both kind of subtly referenced, right? The offspring of David, God incarnate. The one who came in the flesh but overcame even death. And he was victorious and he is victorious and he will continue to be victorious. And so when we remember the victory that Christ has already won on our behalf, that enables us and it empowers us and it motivates us onward. The gospel is everything. So we remember it. We reflect on it. We put our hope in it and nothing else. We cling to it, even when we suffer for it. And Paul was suffering for it, even as he wrote this letter. Bound with chains as a criminal. Treated like a common criminal for being faithful to Jesus. And Paul is in chains, right? He is, he is truly locked down. He's not going anywhere. And here we do find ourselves in Another lockdown. Not nearly as bad as Paul's situation, but still difficult. Confined to our homes, separated from one another, church doors are closed. So what do we do? Now I get, I get that there are limitations. I, I do. I get it. And it's easy to be frustrated. There's a phrase that floats around a lot as you know, pastors and church people are talking about the circumstances we're in. It's this, this phrase, providentially hindered. And while I know that to be true, every time I hear it, I want to punch a hole in the drywall. I'm frustrated, right? It's easy to feel defi- defeated and deflated. It's easy to justify inaction because we feel bound But the word of God is not bound. The word of God is unstoppable. Through wars and famines, pandemics and persecution, the word of God continues to be living and active even now. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? We can be encouraged. We can be encouraged to endure through these continued struggles by the things that motivated Paul. Verse 10, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. We can be motivated by the guarantee of success, at least some success. The gospel works and we are the evidence of that, right? There was a man who lived and died on the other side of the world 2,000 years ago and here we are in a church full of people that has been faithful for 80 years now It works. 
The gospel will be successful no matter the circumstances. So be faithful in whatever capacity you can. If, if the way in which you served, or the place in which you witnessed, or the avenue with which you use for teaching, if those things have been removed, then find a new way to get it done. Church, we have no more time for excuses. No more time to feel sorry for ourselves. If we think that meaningful ministry can't be done, can't continue in this season, then we are, in a sense, failing to acknowledge the power of the gospel. So let us be faithful to the calling on our lives, not because we are strong enough in and of ourselves to do so, but because we can be strengthened by the grace that is in Jesus Christ. Now, in conclusion, I want us to look at the last few verses, this trustworthy saying that Paul reminds Timothy of. And these are truths that we can rest on as we pursue Christ. And they're kind of these four conditional statements. Right? The first, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. And we have died with him. If our old self has indeed been put to death, and, and in this way we have shared in his death. And this is actually represented in baptism, right? Romans 6, 4. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. So that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In the spiritual sense, right, we are born again already. And our life is hidden in Christ. And it's fair to say that there is a sense in which eternal life has already begun. But we also look ahead to a bodily resurrection, a, a, a dwelling with him face-to-face -face forever. The second phrase parallels that. It says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. And this gives us hope because the Christian life is often full of difficulty and challenge. Discipleship was never meant to be a cakewalk. Hardship and persecution are guaranteed. But the promise for us who walk this difficult path is that we will reign with Christ. But if we deny him, he will deny us. Matthew 10.33 comes to mind. Jesus himself saying, Whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. This is a legitimate warning. Let's not take it lightly. Let's not brush that aside. And finally, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And what does this mean? There are two alternative readings, but they both end up pointing to the same truth. The first is kind of read as this positive statement for believers, right? This is good news for the struggling believer because even when I am faithless, even when I am struggling, Jesus is still faithful. That might be the way to read it. That might not be the way to read it. It could be that the faithless one is the same as the one who denies. If we consider him to be untrustworthy, if we do not accept who he is and what he has said and what he has done as truth, then he will still remain faithful to who he is and what he has already said. Paul talks about this in Romans 3 in reference to God's covenant relationship with the Jewish nation. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. 
See, when Paul was writing to Timothy, the church was enduring a time of significant hardship, and and many of those who had identified themselves with Christ ended up denying the faith, proving themselves to be ultimately faithless. But the faithlessness of those people did not diminish the perfect, trustworthy faithfulness of God. He remained true to his word. Alternatively, for those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, even though we may fail at times, even though our faith may be weak, God's faithfulness is very, very good news. We can trust that he will keep every one of his promises to us because his faithfulness is not contingent upon the quality of my faith or my performance. If we have died with him, we will live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. So regardless of which way it's read and who the faithless person is, is it a struggling believer, is it a denier of the faith, one thing remains constant, the character of God. Namely, his faithfulness cannot be changed. It is not affected or impeded by human action or any other circumstance. Even the circumstances we find ourselves in now. So as we reflect on this passage, we find both a challenge and an encouragement here. The challenge of this passage is for us to think seriously. Seriously think about our relationship to our Savior. To consider the cost of discipleship. There will be suffering. There will be struggle. There will be difficulties. And in order to overcome this, we are called to the undivided loyalty and focus of a soldier. The hardworking discipline of an athlete as well as the work ethic of a farmer. We are called to faithfully endure. But the encouragement here, the encouragement is that we do not need to do this in our own strength. We're incapable of doing it in our own strength. Instead, we are strengthened by the grace of Christ. We set our eyes on him. We remember him, who he is, what he's already done. What he's done for us and in us, and through us, and we persevere through these trials of life. Christ himself will supply us with the grace we need for every good work. And though the road is long, the stores of his grace will never be depleted. They are infinite and unfathomable. So let us trust in him. Trust in the one who cannot deny himself. He will keep his promises. He is faithful in every circumstance. Cling to that now, brothers and sisters, and be encouraged. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. Your grace that is freely given through your Son, Christ, to us is such a valuable thing, Lord, and oftentimes we fail to take advantage of what you are, you are offering to us. God, we, we do find ourselves in difficult times. Lord, there are genuine challenges. But let us not be surprised by this. Let us not be frustrated by it. But let us faithfully obey you in all things. May we be strengthened to be disciplined and focused, hardworking and faithful, God. And we trust in you. We trust in you because you are the one who can't deny yourself. Your faithfulness, your righteousness, your holiness are perfect. 
And so let us remember that. Let us, let us remember who you are and what you have done. And may that propel us forward to faithful obedience in the days to come. May it not be said of us that we crumbled under the difficult times. But Lord, that we were strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.